Well, good morning, everyone. And once again, another lovely morning. Now, I don't want to go against what Dave said, but maybe we could try our chorus again. Is that okay? And the only reason I say that is because I've been doing it wrong all week. And that's why you didn't know it. Because I was starting somewhere in the middle. So, we're going to try it again this morning with some new words and uh, see if somehow it just catches in your mind. Let's talk about Jesus, the King of kings is He, the Lord of lords supreme throughout eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the light, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. More and more, I want to magnify His name. More and more, I want to spread abroad His fame. More and more, oh, make my life a living flame. Melt my heart, precious Lord, more and more. Very nice. It's the best that's ever been done. The fewest number. <laughs> A hand, that's right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 22. We're going to read just a couple of verses here at the beginning. I'd like to thank the Lord so much for each one of you. Thanks Dave and Tom and Gary and others that have been carrying forth here in front. And on my part, I'd certainly like to say that the best ministry of the week was not given from the platform up here. The best ministry from the week is always given by those who labor and love, who are not saying, but they're doing. And that's what the Lord asks us to do. So we just thank you so much for that, all of the preparation that's gone into it, the thought, the time, the sacrifice. It takes a lot to put something like this together that we might enjoy the Lord together in such a place. So many thanks to each one of you. Proverbs 21, or 22 rather, verse 1. A verse that you know well, but we trust is going to come a little bit more uh, to light. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And loving favor rather than silver and gold. Psalm 9 and verse 10. A good name, it says, is rather to be chosen. We thank the Lord for His excellent name for His good name. read this verse not too long ago and thought of it in this context of the names and the result that it ought to have in our life. Psalm 9, and it says in verse 10, And they that know Thy name will put their trust in Thee. We've been hearing about the importance of faith and its effect in our life. And how it's because of faith in the Lord and His love in us that we love to share our testimony with others. How we love to live for the Lord. And the psalmist says that if we know His name, if we understand the Lord, we will place our trust in Him. He is a God to be trusted. There's just something about that name. Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about His name. Made mentioned uh, one of the previous messages about some having spent some time in the South and you know y'all and things like that. 
One of my other recollections were about names in the South. And they were a little bit different to me. They shortened the form or they gave nicknames oftentimes. But I recollect being in one local assembly where there were three different ladies and these were their names. One of them was Babes, B-A-B-E-S. It's a short word. Another was Lovey. And another one was Sugar. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone up and called some other man's wife sugar before or not, but it was a rather awkward thing to do. But a name is a wonderful description. It's the shortest summary that we can possibly give with the most comprehensive description of a person. And there's just something about the name of the Lord Himself. Now, just for sake of remembrance and review very quickly before we turn to Genesis 21, you're welcome to do that though, we're going to remember or recall to mind a couple of the things that we've been going through, just in case you might have missed a little something in your notes. Elohim, that great name that appears for us at the beginning, the commencement of Scripture. And the Lord gives His signature right at the beginning, guaranteeing everything. Doesn't wait till the end. It's right at the beginning. And it's a name which is in the plural, but the whole context is in the singular. The one God, and yet the triune God. The God of absolute might and power in creation. And then we read a little bit further and recognized Him as the God who has committed Himself unto mankind. The God who is faithful. And these two things stood out eminent in our minds. That we should fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And we place our faith wholeheartedly in the one who has committed himself unto us. Because the just shall live by faith. And then we said our concept is not quite high enough yet. Even though he is almighty and all powerful. We come to this name El Elyon which is the most high God. And what a privilege it is to know him as the omnipotent, omniscient, most high God. Possessor of heaven and of earth. And then be able to say that I am His, and He is mine. Thou art exalted far above all the gods, says Psalm 97, our great God. And then we came from the heights of exaltation and recognized His humble condescension to us. As the next name that's given is El Roy, or as I've been listening to some of these that know it a bit better, they say El Roi possibly is a good pronunciation as well. And this is the God that sees. But we recognize that it was not merely someone who sat back and looked, but the word itself carries, as does Scripture in the story, this is a God whose prevision is always followed by provision. Man's predicament is God's providence on the other side. And He is a God who loves us so much that He cannot take His eyes off of us. One of my favorite, all-time favorite stories is this. When I was younger, one of the first verses that I memorized was Genesis 16:13. It wasn't my choice. It was my parents' choice. And, of course, in our simplistic way, instead of, Thou, God, seest me, it was, God sees me. Now, you'll have to ask my parents what the purpose in that was. Whether or not it was because I was a rascal, and if I was in the other room and they weren't there, the Lord sees. Whatever the purpose may have been, that was my first memory verse. God sees me. This plaque was on someone's wall, an older woman's wall in her home. 
And she oftentimes brought in young people to her home. And one day, she looked at that plaque and at that verse. And it read, Thou God seest me. And she says, Do you know what that means to me? It means that God loves me so much that He cannot take His eyes off of me. That's what it means. And we learned that we have a God of love and glory. This exalted God in humility is willing to come down to a woman who is in ultimate need and to provide every need thy hand supplying. Over the door of China Inland Mission in China, Hudson Taylor's, there were two names that were placed there over the headquarters. One was Jehovah Jireh. The other was Ebenezer. Jehovah Jireh meaning what? The Lord will provide. That name is identical almost in the root it is with this El Roy. It comes from the same root, the provision of the Lord. And then he said, and then it was said, Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord provided. His tremendous faithfulness in provision for us. And then we looked just for a moment yesterday at this name, El Shaddai. And I'd like us to turn to the book of Ruth. I turned you back to Genesis 21, didn't I? This is about the third time I've done this this week. It's just a ploy to keep you busy and attentive. But turn to Ruth as we finish up just a little bit of El Shaddai. That is, if I can find it here, Ruth chapter 1. We took note yesterday that El Shaddai seemed to be in context the parenting name of God. It always seems to appear only in relation to His own people, to His own that He loves. We noted that it was a tender title of the Lord. That it had to do with family, blessings upon families, the future of families, provision for family. We took note that yes, it referred to His almighty power. But it also referred to a mother in the sense of a breast, which was the care for the child, the place of provision, the place of warmth, of protection, of security. And if you've ever had a little child nuzzle up to its mother, it is a wonderful, precious sight. And it's a tender title that we know of the Lord, this El Shaddai. And so we took some time to trace it through the book of Genesis and see how to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob in the end and Jacob as he passes it on to Joseph in chapter 49 and I believe 25 that it is a God who cares. Now we're going to see another side of the same name as we follow it just a bit through the Old Testament. You might enjoy doing it at some point. El Shaddai is a fairly memorable name today. Maybe only because of some songs that we've heard that include it. But it's recognizable, isn't it? And yet in the Old Testament, there are not that many renderings of it per se. And so you would enjoy tracing it through. But we find it here in the book of Ruth, in chapter 1, in verses 19 and 21, now in a slightly different context, we might think, at least initially. Reading in verse 19, so they went, the two of them, it says, to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. You notice in your margin, perhaps, that Naomi's name means pleasant. And they say, Is this the pleasant one? 
which we once knew. Is this Naomi? She says, call me not Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty, here's our name, hath dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? And the Almighty hath afflicted me, she says. The affliction of the Almighty. Naomi had gone out, perhaps in disobedience, perhaps just following her husband. She comes back, no husband, no sons, two daughters-in-law. She begins to invest her life in Ruth. And there was a chastening, evidently, that had occurred in this life. And we're going to say from the heart of a loving, almighty Father. And she returns to what she thinks is bitterness. But she finds out that even through her daughter-in-law, she's going to become the great mother-in-law, as it were, of the great King David. And in that sense, she's going to have a part in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The chastening of the Lord is always done as only a wonderful, loving Father could possibly do. It's always done for our best. When we turn to the book of Job, where we find this name more than in any other book, we read many different scriptures regarding this idea. I'll just list one for you this morning. Job chapter 5 and verse 17, where it said, Despise not the chastening of the Almighty. He is a good Father. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 briefly this morning. This would be a passage that would come to your minds as we think about this very same subject. In Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read a couple of verses here. Verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, it says, he chasteneth. And he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Verse 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us, speaking of our earthly fathers, after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Isn't it wonderful that because we are sons, the Lord chastens us. It is a guarantee of that relationship that we have. It's always done in love, never above that which we're able. So that we might be able to look back with the Naomi's of the world and say, oh, we have such a good Father. And through chastening, He has displayed that we're not bastards, we're sons. His own sons. And that He has brought us along in a loving way as only a good Father could bring us along. And so we might just say again that this name El Shaddai seems to reinforce for us this truth that we can say before our God in heaven, Abba, Father, as a child. We know Him as the one who blesses us, who blesses our families, and who is always so good in love to chasten us as able, to lead us, to guide us through life as only the perfect Heavenly Father could ever do. I love some of these statements that we find in the New Testament that are 
sort of the penultimate statements. In 3 John, a short verse, John says this to us. He says, I have no greater joy than what? Than to see my children walking in the truth. Now, that's a joy to see someone brought out of darkness into the Lord's marvelous light. To see them become a child of the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. It's a joy to be with saints like this on a weekend or on a week like this. But what is it to see? John says, the ultimate joy is to see your child walking in truth. May we remember that as we too are fathers and mothers. And may we recollect that certainly it must be the same with our El Shaddai, our Heavenly Father in Heaven, that He longs to see. And He loves to see His children, you and me, walking in the truth, carrying on for the Lord as a good son, as a faithful daughter before the Lord. And so we have this idea then of El Shaddai. Now we've been moving to the New Testament to see that no matter the name, no matter the concept, All of them are brought together in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God in Him are yea and amen, we could say. Now, when we think of this great name, this name El Shaddai, this Almighty, this God of provision, and I'll just list a few. We won't take much time to do it. But 2 Corinthians 6.18, the Lord Almighty. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1, the Almighty. Revelation 19.6, The Lord God, omnipotent, the Almighty, reigneth. And this is our Savior. And yet we recognize as well, but my God shall supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Himself is the El Shaddai of the Old Testament in every respect. This great God that we know. The Lord Jesus Christ. The almighty power and the abounding provision that sustains His people through life. We look to the Lord Jesus. Is that to us? Now we wanted to take up one more name this morning because our time is continuing on here swiftly. We're going to turn then finally to to Genesis and chapter 21. And read there about this name called El Olam. Noad was careful to, he says, well, Olam is fine. That would have been my old American way of saying it. But he said Olam might be a good way as well to state it. El Olam or El Olam. Remember with me again in these short seven chapters that this man Abraham, the friend of God, has had revealed to him as he's come before the Lord, spent time with him, loved him, become his friend. These names, one by one, whether through Hagar or directly unto him. But let's read the story, beginning in chapter 21 and verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son. But according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech, 
because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I know not who hath done this thing. Neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it, but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech. Both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these, what mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba, and he called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Notice a couple things here in this story. One is that word, sojourned. We've run across it a number of times. What does it mean? Well, in essence, it means you're not going to stay there very long. You're, you're a visitor, right? You're just a visitor. We also recognize that Abraham had come as a visitor to a man who had evidently done, as far as the record of Scripture goes, now some people might question his integrity on it, but I don't think we have any reason to. He had come into this land and found a king there by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech, you'll remember, had looked upon Sarah, his wife, said she was a beautiful woman, and brought her into his household, and Abraham had said, well, this is just my sister. Sarai, according to the New Testament, had committed it to the Lord. And the Lord battled for her. The Lord fought for her. And Abimelech had all kinds of troubles until he came back to Abraham and found out the truth of the matter. But he says before the Lord, I was innocent in this matter. And now his own herdsmen, his servants, had violently taken away a well from Abraham, which Abraham had dug. And he says to him again, this is the first I've ever heard of it. I'm innocent in this matter. And Abraham, in effect, repays him for it. He, he gives him something for it. And then they swell an oath, swear an oath. And they set up this idea that before God, we're going to have respect one to another. There's room for both of us here. And this well is once again yours. Now this king goes away. And Abraham sets up a grove. And he sets up a name, the well of the oath, Beersheba. But he also sets before us now, the first time that we find it in Scripture in association with God, this everlasting God. When the world around you is temporary, when those things which seem to be yours are no longer yours, whether it's a wife or a well, God, everlasting is always there to superintend. The everlasting God. Now this word olam is used many times before this in the book of Genesis. If you were just to sort of page through your Strong's Concordance. Let me give you a couple of ideas. After the fall, 
the Lord says, lest he eat of the tree of life and live forever. There's the same word. The rainbow was given in Genesis chapter 9 as a token for perpetual generations. There's the word. Forever. In the Abrahamic covenant, the everlasting covenant, there it is again. And now we find out that the God of perpetual generations, that the God of the everlasting covenant, the obvious must be true that He is Himself, the everlasting God, it says. Now this Abraham who had sojourned, who had wandered, look in chapter 20 and verse 13, back in context here just a bit. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 13 We read, and it came to pass, Abraham is saying, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, to wander, the sojourner, it's a very strong word, same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 for us, that we all like sheep have gone astray, we have wandered. Abraham's looking back on his life and he's saying, ever since I came up, out of those southern lands. I've been a wanderer. I've been a sojourner. I took a little bit of time to remember the places he's been. Let me just read them to you very quickly. From Ur to Haran, Genesis 11. From Haran to Shechem, Genesis 12. Shechem to Bethel, Genesis 12. Bethel to Egypt, Genesis 12. Egypt back to Bethel, Genesis chapter 13. Bethel to Hebron, chapter 13. Hebron to Gerar in chapter 20. And now finally he's come to a good land, to a verdant land, to a land where there was room for his flocks, to a land where he could find water, to a land where there seemed to be a king that was willing to make some room. And it's almost as though he's beginning to settle in a little bit and to nestle in just a little bit. And oh, he comes to find out, no, there's no nestling other than in the God who is Everlasting. This world is temporary. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and gain the Holy Spirit's commentary a bit here on this story. In Hebrews chapter 11, you'll know some of these verses by heart. In verse 8 it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he went. That's faith. By faith he sojourned in the land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, as we have been hearing this week, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations. These are not foundations that are laid in this old world on the sand. Abraham is looking not for a tent peg, but he's looking for a foundation, it says, whose builder and maker is God. You will never build a house that has a strong enough foundation because you can't, and I can't. And we can only look for a city who has foundations, whose builder and whose maker is God. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. The very last word in verse 14, if you'll put your eyes on it, that word for country, comes from the root word pater or patrice. You recognize that name, father. That's the root word that's used there. This was a man that looked for a land wherein his father dwelt. He wasn't looking for a land where he was going to live on his own. He was looking for a land where his heavenly father dwelt. Remember the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14. He says it is my father's house. And we look like this man Abraham. Not for the temporary things of this earth. Not for the wanderings and the sojournings of this world. But we recognize that our place, our home, is with our Father in glory. What a good Father He is. This is the everlasting God. And you and I, oppressed with the sense of this earth's instability, we set over and against that, this, the unveiling of a divine and an eternal sufficiency. And a home that isn't temporary. And a true father in heaven. El Olam, he says, says Abraham. The everlasting God. To the God of all the ages, brothers and sisters. We can commit our tomorrows. You see, Abraham was beginning to recognize. That no matter come what may. There was one to be trusted. There was one who was outside of time, who knew the beginning from the ending, and he was going to make all things right in its time. What happens in the very next chapter in our Bible? He's going to come to his greatest moment of testing, this Abraham. But on his mind, in his heart, is the recognition that he served El Olam, the everlasting God. And if that God was going to take His Son, the New Testament would tell us that at a later date, Abraham believed what? That God would give him back that Son, even if it was through, through resurrection. This is the everlasting God, the Lord of glory Himself. To the God of all the ages, we can commit all of our tomorrows. As we step back just a bit this morning, as we have stepped back, And looked at the goodness of God to us. At His heights. At His power. At His faithfulness. At His intimacy with us. There may be one question that we would have yet to ask. And it would say, when will it all end? It's just too good to be true, right? It's just too good to be true. Is there going to come a time, sometime in the future, when the Lord's faithfulness is going to begin to deplete a little bit and His goodness and His strength is going to ebb And Abraham wants to remind us that yes, it is too good to be true. But it is never, ever going to end. All good things must come to an end. That's our statement. Because we live in this old world. All good things must end. But our God is here to say that that's not true. It's only the beginning. It's not the end. He is the everlasting God. A couple of quick biblical stories 
to, to sort of reinforce this a bit. This man, Abraham's son, his name was Isaac. Isn't it fascinating how children have to deal with the same thing their parents did? It's why, young people, your parents are pretty wise. You don't think so, but you haven't dug that well before. They have. And Isaac comes to a point in time where he dug a well. And the herdsmen of Gerah, they come and they strive with him. Not once, not twice, three times, and continually Isaac just steps back and he gives that well back and then he uses it again and they take it again. But he continues to step down. Now, if Abraham had 318 armed men and could take on the five great kings that we spoke about, this son Isaac, everything having been given into his hand by his father, everything increasing, he certainly could have battled the herdsmen of Gera for this well. But living like we're called to live, as Jabe has been sharing with us, to step down, to live in humility, and to allow the Lord to somehow give testimony in the situation... Isaac steps back. Now, maybe his father would have sent the 318 armed men like he did at one point. Maybe his son Jacob would have just sat down at the table and bartered for it and ended up with five or ten more wells. But not Isaac. Isaac stepped back. And the Lord comes to him. Rehoboth, the Lord will provide. The Lord will supply, right? We can commit it to the everlasting God. In the New Testament, there's a little verse in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. And it goes like this. Let your moderation be made known before all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Now, we read this phrase sometimes in the New Testament concerning the Lord being at hand. And it can have to do with His imminent return. The Lord is at hand soon to come. But I believe in this case, it is more so the proximity of the Lord. The Lord is always at hand. Sometimes we think of our young people and we say this world is pressing in. How can they get away from it? The world is so close. Everything around us, the world is right there in their face. There's something far closer than the world. And that's God. Because you live in the lap of the omnipresence of God every moment of your life. And the Apostle Paul says, you let your yieldedness, you let your gentleness, when you have every right, you step back. Because you see, the Lord is at hand. He can make it right, can't He? He will make it right. In the end of all things, the judge of all the earth is going to do right. And everything will be evened out. Everything just. This is our everlasting God. And because He is the everlasting God, we can stand upon that fact and we can leave everything with Him. There are certain things in Scripture like vengeance that you better not touch because it isn't yours. It's God's. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But what a pleasure it is to know this, that The Lord will take care of it far better than we could ever take care of it. Maybe not now. But He's the God of eternity. He's the God of tomorrow. He's the God of our next step. And we leave it with Him. Because He is the everlasting God. Now back to our Old Testament. Just a couple of verses here. To follow on with this name of El Olam. Psalm 90. 
Many times I slip and say Psalm chapter 90. Well, Psalm doesn't have chapters. Psalms does not have chapters, does it? Look in your Bible. It says Psalm 145. You can say the book of Psalms. You don't want to say Psalm chapter 143. Because a psalm is a psalm, is it not? It's a bit like us standing up and saying, let's all turn to hymn chapter 25. A psalm is a hymn. And so we turn to Psalm 90. And we listen in this hymn to these verses in 1 and 2. Very likely a psalm that is attributed to Moses. And it's a reflection or it answers Moses' farewell address at the end of the five books of the law in the Old Testament. His farewell address. Psalm 90 verse 1. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, says Moses, Thou art God, the eternal God. You go past the horizon of your memory in the past and you go beyond the horizons of the future, whatever they may bring. And we still say with Moses, from everlasting to everlasting, he says, Thou art God. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Just a tent is all we have here, we think. But we dwell, again, in the lap of the omnipresence of the omniscient, omnipotent God who from everlasting to everlasting is God. I think of the book of Daniel as we turn now, though not to Daniel, but to Isaiah, because I'd like us to, to bring our thoughts just to a, perhaps a last reference in the Old Testament, but to a wonderful reference concerning this Elolam, this everlasting God. But at the end of the book of Daniel... We find again a theophany, a, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might remember where He sits. He sits over the rivers of time flowing beneath. That this same Lord Jesus, this everlasting God, resides above. I oftentimes think of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels when He says, Our Father who art in heaven, over and over again. This is the God who is above it all, who is beyond it all. And we read that the Lord Jesus Christ sits above the rivers of time. He can see it from its source all the way to where it ends. And He notices every flow and He sees it all flowing beneath. Time is nothing to the Lord. Everything is in the presence. And that everlasting God resides over the rivers of time. But let's turn here in Isaiah chapter 40 to some of our perhaps most favorite verses in all of Scripture. Verse 28, we find this name rendered here in these verses. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of His understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, He increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I'll tell you, we oftentimes feel like Moses. We need Aaron and her to bear up our arms, don't we? To lift up the hands of the weak. And the Lord comes to us and alongside He reminds us of this verse. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God is there to bear you up like eagles on their wings to give you strength when you're weary? What a good God is our everlasting God. I think of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, the King of the ages, it says. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. The Lord Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, never changing. The everlasting God is our Lord Jesus Christ. What a good God that He is. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice again then in conclusion, this man Abraham, who loved the Lord, who was a friend of God, who placed his faith in the Lord. What did the Lord do in response to that? He began to reveal Himself to Him. He'll do the same to us today. If ye believe, Jabe shared with us yesterday, if ye trust, if you place your faith, says John, then ye shall know. And as we come and sit at the feet of the Lord, become a closer friend, He's going to reveal Himself to us in a way above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine. These little things that we've been hearing about this week will become paltry as He personalizes His person to us and He draws close as that intimate, still infinite God of glory. What a God He is. The faithful, everlasting God of glory. It should cause us to say we want to stand up for Him. We want to stand for Him. We want to do everything that we possibly could for Him. That little phrase brings up a remembrance of a simple story that I once heard about a young child in England. In the 1800s at some stage, when coming to their church, it wasn't the type of place that you might like to be, this edifice, but coming to their church was a man by the name of Thomas Paine who did not believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man stood up on the pulpit and for an hour pounding his fist, attempted to share with the people there and to define and to prove that this Lord Jesus whom they followed was in fact not even God at all. And he had a skill in oratory and a power with which he gave it. And when he finished, the whole place was utterly silent. And he felt as though he had given such a good argument that he cried out over that church to see if there were any that could stand against what he had just said. And there was silence. But after about 20 or 30 seconds, there was a little child way back up in the balcony that just stood up and started singing that hymn, Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high His royal banner, it must not suffer loss. Little by little, people began standing up around the child. Pretty soon the balcony was singing. Pretty soon the whole floor was singing. And everybody was standing. And the man shirked out the back door and left. From victory unto victory His army He shall lead. 
till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. The majestic Lord Jesus Christ who is everything that we've been talking about this week. What a good God He is. And I'll tell you, as we think of the ages going on and the everlasting eternities that we're going to share with this El Olam, the everlasting God, you might be able to say with that queen of old that when she came before Solomon and she saw the setting of his table and the glory and the servitude of his servants and the grandiose nature of everything that he lived in and his wisdom, she says, I thought I'd heard it all, but the half has not been told. And you take that longest length of time that you can possibly conceive of, whether it's an eon or an age or an everlasting or an infinity, whatever it is, and you let thousands of them go, them go by. And then you step back in glory with the everlasting God and say, what do I know about Him and the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness to us who are to believe? Heaven's not sitting on a cloud with a harp, is it? But in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And you will still be able to say, after every age that you can conceive of has passed by, that the half has not been told of our everlasting God. Let's pray. Our gracious and everlasting God and Father, we thank Thee this morning for Thy Son. We thank Thee for all that He is to us. For how He has displayed to us in such a wonderful way the very face, the purposes, the love of God. We are thankful that we can say that Him whom having not seen we love, it is He that we wait upon. It is His shout or that shout and that trump that we wait for. And very soon, whether we walk through the veil with Him, or whether we listen to that call and are suddenly with Him, we recognize that to whom we go is this everlasting, all-loving, all-powerful, wonderful God. Wonderful, Counselor, the Almighty God, the everlasting Father. The Father of eternity is our Lord Jesus. O Father, may we in this light as we learn to love Him more, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as we know that our labors are not in vain in the Lord. And as we go home this day, may we be, as we have been hearing, not merely changed men and women, but changed ten times and more, because we know a good God who is willing and who is able. We just pray these things as we continue to adore to worship, and to appreciate our Lord. In His precious and His everlasting name we pray, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that name above every name. Amen.